Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash knoxrobinson to learn more. Welcome to Labyrinths, brought to you by iHeartRadio and Knox Robinson Productions. What happened with your wrongful conviction? What happened? What didn't happen? I think everything that could have happened, happened in my case. What I'm always educating people about is that, listen, people, it's not wrongful conviction. We have been framed. And the fact of it is, is that in my case, you had prosecutorial misconduct, you had official misconduct, you had ineffective assistance of counsel, where you had a, a defense attorney who lacked the courage to hold presumption of innocence before anything else. Yeah. Before anything else. And if you have a problem with doing that, don't take the case. They had a lying witness that the prosecutor had given a deal to for his testimony to lie. The police misconduct with the detective that did everything that she can do to win the case. Even in an excited all of the facts that did not point to me or my co-defendant. She felt that was necessary for her to progress her career. And so it became a win and not a pursuit of justice. You know, I don't even think I asked the question why. I think the answer is just always about self-greed and, you know, stepping on someone else to do that. You know, it's not a shameful thing in the society these days. I just happen to be the person that they stepped on. So that's what happened. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. With vaccines rolling out to millions, the end of this endless pandemic is finally in sight. And we're all looking forward to life returning to something approximating normal. And that means restaurants and weddings and riding the bus and farmer's markets. But the thing I'm personally looking forward to most is the Innocence Network conference. Two years in a row now, the conference has been canceled. And that's a tragedy because it's a place of healing and activism and community unlike any other. When I first came home from prison, I had never met another wrongfully convicted person. In fact, I wasn't even sure if other wrongfully convicted people existed. I was naive and I felt really alone. I couldn't make friends. I was still doing weird prison things like washing my underwear in the sink and trying to run away from paparazzi who wouldn't leave my family or me in peace. You were kind of a wreck. Yeah. And this DNA expert at the Idaho Innocence Project told my mom that there were people like me, exonerees, who it would be good for me to meet. It would be a healing experience for me. And I would have a chance to do so by attending one of these Innocence Network conferences. But of course, the last thing that I wanted to do at that time in my life was walk into a room full of strangers who would recognize me. Mm -hmm. And that was a horrifying prospect to me, even if this was an innocence community. 
But my mom insisted. She mommed me and dragged me (laughs) down to Portland to this Innocence Network conference where it was being held. And I remember going into the basement of a hotel with its bad lighting and its horrible carpet leading into this ballroom. And I was shaking and I was nervous. And the instant I walked in the door, two men ran up to me and gave me big, big hugs. And they introduced themselves as exonerees and they said, and I'll never forget, you don't have to explain a thing, little sister. We know. I'll never forget that, that they knew just what I felt going into that room at that moment and just what I needed to hear. Each year at the conference, hundreds of exonerees gather with thousands of years of wrongful imprisonment shared between them. They form the core of a community that also includes Innocence Project lawyers and advocates, forensic experts and scientists, and family members like me. It's a space defined not by tragedy, but by survival and hope. And one of the most inspiring people we've met at the conference is Obi Anthony, who you just heard a moment ago. Not only is Obi a fellow exoneree, he's also my exoneree twin. We both got released from prison on the exact same day, October 4th, 2011. But while that day was the end of four years of hell for Amanda, for Obi, You spent 17 years inside. 17 years. Yeah. Basically like half your life at that point. What was going on in your life before this big boulder fell on top of you? (laughs) What was your life like just before this? You know, I grew up in Los Angeles, California. I was an inner city kid. You know, I was in South Central. I ran with gangs. You know, I was 18. Got kicked out of high school. Was going to continuations. I was working with the California Conservation Corps. I was going to school to trade school to be a dentist assistant. I was listening to my mom. My mom had always been on my back about, you know, leave those guys alone. Ain't nothing good. Get yourself straight, this and that. And so I just moved out, got my own apartment. I was working not only with the California Conservation Corps. I had a job at the Hilton as a janitor at that time. Mm. I was getting my life together. Though. I was, you know, I was on a path to try to do something better than what was going on. But that path was cut short when Obi was charged with murder. What was the crime that you were accused of? What actually happened? So I was accused of a murder, three attempted murders, and three attempted robberies, which had attached special circumstances. And they charged me with the death penalty, and it was about a murder that happened outside of a brothel that was located in South Central Los Angeles on 49th Street in Figueroa. On March 27, 1994, a man named Felipe Angeles was driving around with two friends. They stopped outside an apartment building that had been operating as a brothel. These guys, a few Hispanic guys, got off of work late and was out. One of them saw what you know he described as his machica prostitute that was walking down by the front of his brothel. So him and his friends busted Yui, turns around, try to catch up with her, but she ducked into the building on the corner. And, you know, they tried to see if they can get her to come out. They was confronted at the door, told, hey, look, she's busy, get away. 
it was a really sophisticated brothel. Mm. There was a registry when you come in. You know, he had cameras everywhere. The evidence from those cameras told a confusing story. Most of it heard through audio captured from action outside the camera's view. Guy turns, he leaves the door. Then you could just hear all of the other things that's transpiring. That's when all the discrimination happens. You can hear it on a video where it's, you hear the muffles of some sounds, some talking. In the audio from the security footage, voices can be heard saying, give me your money, all your money, too slow, kill him, kill him. You hear the muffles again, gunshots ring out. And one of the guys uh, died there on the scene. He gets shots once in the back. The other couple of guys that was in the car, they got shot up pretty bad, survived. They pulled off from the scene. That's where the investigation started from. The police had one lead. A building resident, John Jones, told them he'd seen the shooters. The investigators already had their eyes on Reggie Cole and Obi Anthony for their gang affiliation and had arrested them on unrelated charges that were later dropped. But while in custody, they put Reggie and Obi in a lineup for John Jones, and he ID'd them as the shooters. And in separate trials, Jones testified against Reggie and Obi. It didn't matter that no physical evidence connected either of them to the murder. Jones's eyewitness testimony was damning. But John Jones wasn't exactly a reliable witness. In fact, he was the pimp who ran the brothel, and he had a rap sheet of his own. This was the witness that they brought in. The same pimp killed his wife, shot her twice in the head. Jones had already served time for that murder, and now he was facing further charges for pimping and pandering, and he couldn't even keep his story straight about what exactly he'd witnessed. The pimp or the brothel who became the witness indicated initially that he had witnessed the entire thing, right? He said they seen the guys come across from this auto body shop. It was four of them. They approached the guys on the corner. They started jacking them and this and that. And some unknown citizen that was driving by in the car, seeing what was going on, and started issuing out some street justice and started shooting at the guys as they was doing these things. Basically, Jones claimed that not only had he seen the shooters— but that he'd seen a good Samaritan fire shots of his own at the attackers as they fled, hitting one of them in the leg. This story was used by the LAPD to justify targeting Reggie Cole, who had a bullet wound in his leg. But that wound was several years old. Then that story changed to he didn't see anything, right? He didn't see that. He only heard it. And then he stuck his head out of the window, and it went from four guys to three guys, and then now one of the guys could have been the dog. Unreliable witness testimony is a prominent cause of wrongful convictions. Prosecutors in my own case brought in a string of crazy witnesses, including one who claimed he nearly run me over in the middle of the street while I was brandishing a machete and wearing a garbage bag in the days prior to the murder and who only escaped by throwing some olives in my face. It was astonishing to me that the prosecution would put forward a witness who was so obviously unreliable. But with what I know now, I'm not surprised that the key witness in Obi's case changed his story repeatedly, that the number of men changed, that one turned into a dog. And it's sad to say, but I'm also not surprised that those inconsistencies didn't matter to the cops, the prosecution, or even Obi's defense counsel, who put up a feeble case for his defense. 
Both Reggie and Obi were convicted of first-degree murder. Reggie got life in prison. Obi got life in prison without the possibility of parole. And he was left with a whole lot of unanswered questions. Lo and behold, there I sat for 17 years with a life without the possibility of parole, plus 50 years on my back, wondering if anybody gonna ever locate this unknown citizens that decided to issue out some street justice that you know just ha- happens to be going by at the time and start shooting and keep going. <laughs> there and behold, I, I was sitting in the penitentiary trying to find the dog. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. There is perhaps no greater form of gaslighting than being wrongfully convicted. You're not just put through the hell of prison as an innocent person. You're told by the state, by the authorities, by the prison officials, that you're a killer, a monster, a deviant who deserves what you're getting. Did you tell people that you were innocent? And did people believe you in there? Well, no. I didn't go around telling nobody I was innocent. That's not, you know, that's... I mean, like, you got your cellies that you be in there with. Y'all may talk your case and this and that. Everybody in there always says that they didn't do it. So that's not really the thing. It, it'd be a little bit more when it came to the correction officers and not so much when it came to the other inmates because hmm. the correction officers, some put you in this sort of humiliating place as an additional punishment on top of mm-hmm. being punished for something that they perceived that you did. Mm-hmm. And so they figure like they locking you up so they can punish you by being humiliating, demoralizing, uh, denying and to continue to keep you suppressed. You could see them being that way with little things like they only give you two rolls of toilet paper mm-hmm. for the week, right? But it's bro, it's two men in here. You gonna give us two rolls? What is? What are you <laughs> come on, and you giving us chicken a la king? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so when you need toilet paper, soap, anything like that, the normal process is you know, and there you'll go down and ask the floor officer for it. Hey, look, you know, run out of toilet paper. I need some toilet paper up here. And their normal thing is to reference you to the control booth officer, the dude that's in the tower above you. It was that broke neck thing. So it always wanted you to look up to this authoritative figure to mm-hmm. get something that's so small and minute. Mm-hmm. In other words, to put you in this mental submissive place about something like, come on, bro, because if not, what you got me looking up and this dude tell me yes or no. You know, it puts you in a state of mind, mm-hmm. specifically in that environment where you're not supposed to be at in the first place because you didn't do anything to be in there. You can see these things that they're just trying to do to break you down mentally, even more so than where you was already happening. And for me, it's like, look, bro, I'm like, no. Nah, I'm not the dude over there or him over there. I'm not even supposed to be here, so I'm not no idiot either. It's just toilet paper, bro. Right around here in the staff bathroom, he's going to tell you to get it out of the staff bathroom. Mm -hmm. We all know where it's at. Why do we have to go through this mental gymnastic game that you want to play just over some toilet paper? Mm -hmm. Like, come on, man. Like, don't, you know, it ain't that serious. And so in those moments, or when you're coming out of the child hall in the men's facility, what happened is that they'll strip you out. 
for search purposes, right? So they for the safety and the security of the institution. On Ola King night, it's a bag of juice. You want to strip me out talking about you searching for a weapon that I'm bringing out of the kitchen. Bruh, <laughs> why are you doing this? Like, But they'll strip you out right there. Bottle of wine is coming out. They'll have you take your clothes off, strip you down to your boxies. Mm. And in some cases, even take you through the whole Ruga Maduga, mm-hmm. you know, with the whole Ben and Cough game. Because, you know, they, they crazy, man. They do things. And for me, I didn't go for none of that. Like, you're not going to demoralize me like that because I'm not supposed to be here. So you ain't going to treat me like I did this massive thing. You could take me over there and put me in a hole and decide to bring me something to eat tonight or not. Uh, I'm ready to lay it down. Now. Yeah. That's where I really stood up and that's where I really had that, that innocent kind of conversation. Yeah. In my prison, we had a thing called the Domandina. Um, So instead of, yeah, you weren't even supposed to really ask the guards for anything. You had to fill out a form (laughs) for any little thing. So the only thing you could do is like ask for the form that you would do to ask for the thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You're like, I'll use this as toilet paper. Those those little things right there, that's just being unhuman, right? You know, that's not using humility. Like, you know, don't say nothing to me. Write it down. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? Like, mm-hmm. come on. What happened last night? Is everything all right? Did, mm-hmm. you know, she leave? The kid? What happened? The dog did? <laughs> <laughs> like, what happened, bro? You don't have to be like this. And they used to always call me a smart ass. You think you're a smart ass, Anthony? No, I don't, man. But I'm, I'm going to tell you this, though. I got life without the possibility of parole plus 50 years, and you more stressed out than me. <laughs> mm. now, I'm just saying. Look at me and look at you. I got a smile. Yeah. You don't. Amanda told me that inside she had a hustle that kept her safe. She was one of the few literate people who could read and write. And so she translated documents and she wrote letters for people. She helped people talk to the doctor. Right, right, right. And I'm wondering, like, did you have any kind of hustle? inside or how did you guarantee your own safety well i don't know if it was a guarantee it was a ploy (laughs) 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 well you know it definitely was no guarantee but i had the blessing to get you know line the lowest working spot in the laundry you know i think i had just been there for maybe like a year and i got a job in the laundry lucky right right and i was like oh i'm in the laundry so but laundry became my hustle in more than one ways Everybody used to tell me, tell me like, hey, look, how many, hey, look, how much you'll sell me with like six, seven boxers and six, seven pairs of socks and some, you know what I mean? Some new stuff that like, but you're going to hit me for some new stuff. And I'll be like, look, bro, listen, they gave me life without the possibility of parole. This is my shit. Excuse my language. This is my stuff. Look, don't even worry about it. Man. You got to come ask me, brother. Like, you know, don't worry about that. I got a laundry bag. I sent him a whole laundry bag. So I sent one to their sale with socks, T-shirts, drawers, tiles, and mm. new shirts, blue shirts, and maybe a pair of pants. And you know what I mean? I tell them, look, hit me up later and I'll get you some boots or whatever, right? I realized and understood that the giving in the way of it created this little unspoken relationship because I was the laundry dude. They needed laundry. And that hit everybody. That you know, laundry mm. didn't have no discrimination, so it didn't matter. Mm. <laughs> you know, what color you was, just put me on. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. So it helped that way. So it helped me 
feed myself, keep myself with some cosmetics, have some little writing things. But it also helped me in my sort of moving around on the yard. They always looked at me like, oh, that's cool, dude. I, you know, yeah. cool. I looked out for this. And so I wanted that kind of thing because, you know, I didn't want to be perceived as some sort of tough guy, nor I wanted to be perceived as some weakly neither that can be taken advantage of. Hmm. And so that was my hustle, the laundry. While Obi managed to keep out of trouble through the laundry hustle, his co-defendant, Reggie Cole, wasn't so lucky. Consequently, what happened was around 2001, Reggie Cole was doing time at another institution at Calipatria. I was doing time at Corcoran State Prison in Bakersfield, Fresno area, Central Valley. He was being bullied by a guy at the time, and one day he ended up defending himself down there, and the guy died. Oh, shit. And we both had life without the possibility of parole, so they was trying to get Reggie the death penalty then. But here, finally... Reggie's luck changed, and that would have consequences for Obi. And he ended up getting a lawyer, two lawyers, as a matter of fact, one, Eric Rivera, another one by the name of Christopher Plore, that began to start uh, fighting for him not to get put on death row. Hmm. They went back and was looking at our original case, and then Christopher Plore sent me a letter indicating that they was reinvestigating the case and that there may be some information there that can exonerate us and that he would like to come and visit me on the behalf of Reggie Cole. Reggie Cole's habeas attorneys, attempting to save him from the death penalty, discovered that the prosecution in his original trial had withheld evidence and that he'd had ineffective defense counsel. That's when it all kicked off. It was back in 2001. Things didn't come left to him until 2007. Fighting to get someone off death row or to exonerate them often takes years. For Reggie Cole, it took six more years until 2007, 13 years after he and Obi had been imprisoned, to be granted an evidentiary hearing to determine if the withheld evidence and poor defense counsel would have changed his trial's outcome. And key to this hearing was the inconsistent eyewitness testimony of convicted killer and pimp John Jones. Even during our evidentiary hearing, Amanda, you know, he's told another miraculous story. You know, this whole case was his story. Not no police investigation, not no nothing else. One magnificent story after another. But again, when we were sitting here at this evidentiary hearing, one of the, the last one that I've heard out of him with his magnificent story, when questioned about what he's seen that night, you know, he said when he looked out of the window, he looked down, he said, well, the unknown citizen, you know, you know, y'all seen him right there on the corner. It was a man with a big yellow hat. Like Curious George's character. Hey, listen. hey, listen. I don't know. Hey, listen. This dude said this on the stand while being questioned about the unknown citizen. He now identifies as a man on a corner with a big hat. It was amazing. Wow. It was like, wow. Did he just say that? Was it a sombrero? During the hearing, Jones admitted that he had not, in fact, seen the shooter saying he'd relied on a description given by his daughters. And at that point in 2007, Christopher Plore reached out to me again and told me to, you know, hey, look, reach out to the Innocent Project again. And I'm like, man, like, I already reached out to him. Like, they already told me there ain't nothing they can do. And so, you know, he told me, no, do it again. Hmm. And to uh, reach out to the NCIP, to the Northern California Innocent Project. And I did. And in 2008, after reviewing my case, the NCIP decided to take my case up. 
and employed the assistance in Layola Project for the Innocent, and that's how they all got involved in my case. It was a first for them. The Loyola Project for the Innocent, founded by Lori Levinson, was brand new, and Obie's was their very first case. It was also a first for Obie. He finally found someone who believed in his innocence. I had the pleasure of being represented by the Northern California Innocent Project. It was Linda Starr, Paige Knib, Loyola Project for the Innocent, and Laurie Levinson, Adam Grant. Yeah. It was amazing because, uh, you know, I always say you got to be thankful and careful for what you ask for. You know, I asked for the best, and I got the lady who wrote the book on prosecutorial misconduct in Laurie Levinson. Mm-hmm. And then I had Linda Starr, who was an excellent prosecutor in her days that was doing defense work. And I had two rising stars, Paige Knib and Adam Grant mm-hmm. and a team around them. It was like, whew, you know what I mean? It was like a relief to have that help on top of what I was doing. So again, getting back to help helps help and hurt, hurts, hurt. When you're in that situation, you look for people to help you to get out of that situation. So when they come, you help them to do that. Uh, and so I was forthcoming whatever I could to be able to assist us in respect to their process, which is really is the crux of the work, right? The grid and the ground of the work, investigators are going to do to find that new information and things like that. That new information included evidence that indicated that star witness John Jones may have been the shooter himself. Evidence showed that this dude was what probably killed the guy. It was his brothel. The shot came from where he said he was at. Mm. We had a math expert come in there that proved the trajectory of the bullet and where it came from. Based on the autopsy, the trajectory of the bullet that killed Felipe Angeles was 40 degrees and entered his body at 49.5 inches. That made it much more likely that the bullet was fired from the roof of the building, where John Jones may have been, and not from ground level, where John Jones claimed he'd seen Obi and Reggie. A reporter by the name of Miles Corn, the morning after the crime, the detectives went up on the roof and while up under the roof, they gave him for a souvenir some shell casings that was up on the roof. And at my deposition, he decides to turn this evidence over to my then civil attorneys, who then sent the things off to ballistics. And the ballistics indicated that the shell cases was connected to that crime. Further evidence that the shots came from the roof of Jones's brothel. Obi's attorneys at the Northern California Innocence Project also discovered that Jones had not only fabricated his eyewitness testimony, he'd perjured himself when he'd said he'd received no benefit for testifying. It turned out Jones had been facing 12 years on pimping and pandering charges, and the DA had offered him a deal in exchange for testifying against Obi and Reggie. Got probation for that. You know, he had been working with the cops for many years. Many years. The DA had let this convicted killer and pimp off with three years probation in order to deliver testimony they knew was unreliable. And when he lied under oath about not receiving any benefit for his testimony, the prosecution failed to inform the court or defense counsel that he'd committed perjury. 
Why would the authorities cut Jones so much slack? Well, maybe because LAPD officers were clientele of John Jones's brothel. All this led to a superior court judge vacating Reggie Cole's conviction in 2009. It took two more years for Obie to see justice. You know, from beginning to end, it was a total of 10 years that had went by from the moment when I found out that they was reinvestigating the case. And then in uh, 2011, thankfully and gratefully, Your Honor, Kevin Father, with the courage and the strength that it took for him to see through that, to have the discernment to realize the truth and, and to exonerate me and to say it in his summations. This dude here just making it up and the detective just was running with it. Okay. And it was proof that the detective wasn't interested in discovering who actually did it. Ugh. It was amazing. After being framed of this crime that transpired and this miraculous story that they concocted to put it on me. And the fact that the matter is that after all of this time being home and going through the process of evidentiary hearing, a civil complaint, going through depositions, seeing all of the information, looking at all of the crimes that they broke. Mm. Mm. To frame me, to put me there for something I didn't do. Mm. I tell people that sometimes. It's like, you got to imagine something. Like, for 17 years of my life, you know, I had to grow up in South Central Los Angeles. And all of the stuff that happens in there, from gangs and shootings and drugs and homelessness and poor education, you know, everything that's going on in that situation. But then... For another 17 years of my life, I had to grow up in the prison settings where I wasn't supposed to be at, mm. which is a total of 34 years out of just a mere 46. Hearing Obi say that is just crushing to me. He never had a choice. No good choices, anyway. Not in gangland South Central as a teen, not on trial with a defense attorney who thought he was guilty, or might as well be, not in Corcoran State Prison. It's not fair. In his mid-30s, Obi was emerging from a very dark labyrinth into an unknown world with very few resources. He had no ID, no social security card, no birth certificate. He didn't know how to write a resume or have anything to put on it. He struggled with basic things we all take for granted. Cell phones, internet, health insurance. Things that even paroled felons get state assistance for, but which exonerees don't. What's crazy is not just that Obi figured all this out on his own, but that he saw other exonerees dealing with the same thing, and he decided to do something about it. I had already been talking it up to other exonerees and conferences and Man, so I remember me and you at that first conference. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it was amazing to me, but it was saddening too because we was all saying the same stuff. You had to get an ID. We was having issues integrating back into a community because of the uh, stigma that goes with being framed. You know, your stuff was public, my stuff was public, Brian's stuff was public, all our stuff was public. And so, we was talking about some of the successes and failures that we had and where those struggles were still at. And it was just like, for me, I kept hearing about what was happening in, in Arizona and what's happening in California and New York and so forth and around the States. And it was just like, that's what prison did. Mm. Whites, Blacks, 
massacres and others. It was segregated. Hmm. That's what the system was trying to do, segregate us. When they did us, they did us all the same way. And they doing us all the same way on the return. Mm-hmm. No state want to take responsibility for ripping innocent people up out of their community, no matter what their conditions were prior before you put them in that situation. Mm-hmm. You don't got a right to go into a community and go any, many, mighty mode. You got to go mm-hmm. and make stories up around people. And what I realized is that because they don't want to take responsibility you have to take care of those who cannot take care of themselves to speak for those who can't speak for themselves. So, Obi started a nonprofit called Exonerated Nation. And so Exonerated Nation, for me, was that. Because I know Danny Brown out in Ohio, mm. who's been struggling, been home. I know Mr. Willie Green, who's been home, struggling, ain't been compensated. These individuals came home prior to us, and you have to think about it. Mm-hmm. There was no compensation that was suitable for exonerees. Mm -hmm. There was no housing programs. There was no education. There was none of these things because the state arrogancy says that only guilty people get locked up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they don't owe you anything. You know, you're nothing, right? Right? But then Amanda Knox, Obi Anthony, Michael Morton all walk out of the door at the exact same time and say, what about us? Mm -hmm. What about us, though? Because here we are. We were all innocent. And there is Can't no- get a job. Where are we going to live? What are our relationships going to be like? We have to make all of that stuff mm-hmm. just from scratch. Mm. We are like 10 years old now, Amanda. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we have to learn all of this stuff. And it's constantly moving. It hasn't steadied on us. Technology hasn't steadied on us. Societal affairs has a steadied on us. Politics has a steadied on us. Those things only progress. You know what I mean? A big part of Obi's mission has been to address those practical concerns by talking to legislators and trying to create political change. That started with California Assembly Bill 672, which came to be known as Obi's Law. Man, the practical part of it is like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like I've been in the ring with Tyson and then hopped out and got in with Mayweather. It's like I've been boxed around, bro. Wow. You know, it's been great. Right? I mean, like Obi's Law was an opportunity to introduce the problems and issues that was going on with the California exonerees to the legislators. And it was also an opportunity for them to acknowledge that this is happening and that this is happening. Obi's Law connected us to the same things that Regular people who are coming on probation and parole get mm-hmm. those services. We come home, it's nothing on the books for us. Nope. In 2011, when we came home, it was nothing on the books that indicated that these are the things that a person that is exonerated should get, period. And so after Obi's law, we were successful with the passage of AB 1050. Obi's law was just connected to exonerees to those same services. It didn't give us the gate money, and it wasn't no automatic enrollment into another services like CalFresh, Medi-Cal, or Medicaid. And so when we did 1050, the thought process was to continue to expand that. And so AB 1050 gave up, I think it was up to $1,200 gate money. Hmm. Nice. So now, yeah, right. So the exonerated person now gets $1,200 gate money in the state of California. They also get automatic enrollment into Medi-Cal or Medicaid. 
automatic enrollment into CalFresh, and it also get expungement hmm. because people who came home and was talking about still having a fear of those things still being on this record when being poured over, not knowing whether or not if those things had been expunged all the way up to the Department of Justice, and specifically looking at those individuals that have been falsely put in prison for sex crimes. Hmm. And, and, and how those things attach them to registries and things like that, right? So you have to be tactical in your approach. And then at the same time, grand in your approach and not coming in just asking for too little, but asking for the necessary things. And it's a lot of conversations. I'm grateful to the community because we've been able to have two different convenings where we was able to bring in exonerees to have that conversation about those immediate needs in the communities, to have that discussion when we go to the Capitol. One thing I like about Exonerated Nation, and I think it's super smart of you, is you just end up spending a lot of time with exonerees. And one of the things I love, I love about exonerees is we're all unique, right? We all came from these different circumstances. We're all dealing with our unique struggles. But we all have that same thing. Yeah. And we all just love each other. I get chills when you said that. Like when you went there, I got chills because I mean, like, actually, I mean, like, you're right. It is. Ultimately, it was about bringing the community together mm. because we love coming together. Mm-hmm. Why we love coming together is because this is what happens to people that go to war. They come back from war. They go to a debrief. For us, coming together mm. is a debriefing opportunity because we are the only ones that know what we went through. To form Exonerated Nation was an opportunity, in other words, to bring that community together so that we can be better us to us, mm-hmm. consider us more than we have considered ourselves before. Wow. So just well, thank God away. for you, Obi. You don't have to be doing what you do, but you're bringing positivity and community wow. to people. That's really inspiring. Thank you, bro. You know, coming from you too, man, that means a tremendous amount. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor, in other words, to do this work that I'm doing. It's been a challenge. I'm going to tell you, you know what I mean? Uh, it's been a distracting challenge. Just stepping out of my own suffering for a minute to try to help and understand what someone else is going through to try to help them resolve their issues. Find a house, maybe find a job, maybe be somebody to talk to. Gets me out of my own mind having to figure out you know, my little stuff. It's helping me to experience other people's cases and suffering for a minute. And it has distracted me from my own personal suffering but in a weird way, also giving me tools to help myself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As Obi would say, hurt hurts hurt. Help helps help. The core of Obi's work and his wisdom is so simple and yet so profound. For 34 years, Obi was overlooked, stepped on, abused, and thrown away. Miraculously, that didn't make him bitter. It made him want to be the help that he never got. It's so counterintuitive to think that when you're the most stuck, when you're desperately in need of help, the way out might be to help someone else. Because helping others changes you and reveals resources you didn't even know you had. In that spirit, We encourage you to support Obi's work with the Exoneree community at exonerationnation.org. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Instagram. At Amama Knox. At E-M-C-E-E Carbon. 
and at knoxrobinson.com, where you can find out how to access special subscriber-only audio, curated reading lists, and video Q&As with yours truly. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Our executive producer is Holly Fry. Labyrinths is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Knox Robinson Productions. Anything else? You looked like you had a thought. I mean, final thoughts about Obi? <sighs> um, gosh, I just, I kept finding myself tearing up while working on this episode. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I feel so moved by it. You mean like out of all the exoneree stories that you've been exposed yeah. to? You know, a lot. there are a lot of tragic stories. And a lot of positive people. Do you feel like you can relate more to Obi for some reason? Not necessarily. I think it's one of those, it's one of those things where you see somebody and you can just tell instantly, that's a good dude. Yeah. Like what a good man. And it reminds me of how I feel about you. Like not, not just some person who didn't do something, mm. a good person, mm. a, a person better than the average person, a kind person. That's, that's why maybe. Yeah, it's almost like, like what happened to Obi is not something that he would have, he wouldn't make that kind of mistake and do that kind of harm to someone in the world. Yeah. But it happened to him. And just like the kind of guy who would do what he's doing now, you know? Mm -hmm. Nobody should be wrongfully convicted, but especially not Obi. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> not Obi. <laughs> Come on. What are you doing yeah. here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. These aren't the ads you're looking for. These aren't the ads we're looking for. This podcast is listener supported. This podcast is listener supported. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.